Hard Feelings by Mark Coggins is a bang bang thrill ride, says best-selling author Seth Harwood, who adds that the lead character of Winnie is a female Jack Reacher. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 31 Ray Thirty minutes before zero hour, Ray pulled his Dodge Aries to a stop in front of the gate to the fire road that ran to the top of Mount St. Helena. When he got out to open the padlock he and Reardon had attached during their previous visit, he was surprised to find it was gone. There was no lock of any sort. Ray decided that the park ranger, or someone else in authority, had discovered their lock and had removed it. It didn't seem like a good omen. It didn't seem like a good omen at all for an enterprise decidedly lacking in good omens. He spat out a fragment of cellophane from the wrapper of the little Debbie cake he'd been opening with his teeth and watched as it fluttered through the light from the Aries headlamp. Then he heard Reardon's voice in his head nagging him about someone of his advanced age having little Debbie cakes. Screw him! thought Ray. Reardon's favorite food was SpaghettiOs, often eaten cold right from the can. That was a healthy mix of MSG, rat excreta, and bug antennae, if there ever was one. He flung the gate open and lowered himself gingerly back into the car. It was hard now to sit comfortably, much less take a piss. His prostate was acting up again. What someone of his advanced age shouldn't have was an enlarged organ the size of a rutabaga. That's what someone of his age shouldn't have. If he ever got into a debate with a proponent of intelligent design, all he would have to do is cite the prostate to win hands down. Any engineer with half a brain could have come up with a better design to inject a little fluid into a pipe than to wrap the blasted injector around the pipeline and risk cutting off the stream. The old Luger digging into his backside didn't help matters any. Reardon had insisted he take it for protection, and Ray had shoved it in his waistband like he'd seen the detective do. Probably shoot my butt cheek off if I'm not careful, thought Ray. He knew how to work the gun, though. He'd shot it many years before. It came from Reardon's father, who was an old friend of Ray's. Ray and he had plunked cans with it in the desert behind the trailer park when Ray was about the age of Reardon and Reardon's father was living alone in the trailer where the detective lived now. Ray shook his head. A lot of history in that family. He nudged the car into gear and pulled through the gate. Then he got out to close it and once more went through the painful ritual of reestablishing himself behind the wheel. Were the little Debbie cakes somehow making his prostate worse? They were chock full of yellow dye number five, and he'd read that the dye messed with men's reproductive systems. He hated to think that Reardon could be right. He knocked the box of cakes from the seat to the floor and urged the car up the winding fire road toward the summit. He drove slowly, 
carefully, hugging the mountainside away from the cliff. He didn't want to repeat the near derailment he'd experienced when Reardon and he had last gone to the top. Ray promised himself that if anyone was going to execute his part of the assault properly, it would be him. He didn't have much faith in Winnie. When he had presented ten single-space pages of his carefully researched, thoroughly timed, and meticulously described master plan, she had swept a stack of legal sheets from the coffee table, labeling it OCD and fucked in the head. Fucked in the head, Ray understood. Only later, when he had a chance to look up OCD, did he realize it stood for obsessive-compulsive disorder, which still didn't make much sense to him in this context. What was clear was that Winnie wasn't going to follow any plan but her own. Reardon, never much of a planner himself, was clearly upset. This isn't Sandlot football where the quarterback can say, go long and hope for the best, he shouted. Ray may have gone a bit overboard, but we have to plan. Kill the winemaker, snapped Winnie. That's my plan. And you're right. This isn't football, sandlot or otherwise, because we're not a team, and neither of you is the quarterback of me. Jesus, said Reardon, as Winnie stormed out. Ray and Reardon salvaged what they could from the ten yellow legal sheets. It boiled down to a grand diversion to give Winnie the best chance to do whatever it is she was going to do. In the end, she at least agreed to carry a cell phone and take one of Ray's improvised explosives to blow the back door. That was something, but it wasn't much. The headlights from the Aries found one of the blocky buildings that lined the road to the top, and then the other. A minute later, Ray pulled off the rutted fire road onto the football field-sized patch of asphalt at the summit. He parked where he had parked the last time and cut the motor, leaving the lights on to work by. He glanced at his watch. It was ten minutes to zero hour, one fifty in the morning. Reardon would be cutting the power cable to the winemaker's property soon and then trying to breach the fence. If he managed all of that, he would move to blow the generator. Ray needed to have the kamikaze plane ready to launch once he received the signal from Reardon. He levered himself out of the car and half-jogged to the trailer, suddenly anxious that everything he'd worked and planned for over the last few days was actually happening. He fumbled open the door to the trailer and pulled out the disassembled wings and fuselage of the Piper Cub. He carried them to a spot between the beams of the car's headlights and used a pair of crisscrossing rubber bands to attach the wings to the top of the plane. Then he hurried back to the trailer to grab the styrofoam cooler containing the Molotov cocktails. The cocktails were actually two 500-watt light bulbs from which Ray had carefully removed the screw caps and filaments, filled with a self-igniting accelerant, and sealed airtight with special epoxy. He chose the light bulbs to ensure that they would shatter when the plane crash-landed into its target but their fragility made them dodgy to handle and transport, to say nothing of the difficulty of attaching them securely to the plane. He'd settled on a padded cradle under each wing, again relying on rubber bands to actually affix the bulbs to the cradles. 
When he managed to strap them onto the Piper Cub without lighting himself or the plane on fire, he sighed with relief. In many ways, this was the most dangerous thing he had to do that night. The feeling of relief faded as he squatted by the plane and pondered the question that had plagued him since he had conceived the plan. Would this stupid thing actually fly? With the bulbous appendages under each wing, the store-bought model hardly looked airworthy. Ray had wanted to construct a purpose-built plane to carry the cocktails, but Reardon had nixed that. He didn't think Winnie would sit still for it, and Reardon was probably right. It was just one more example of how Winnie had stampeded their plans. Ray returned to the trailer and wheeled out his flight caddy, a rolling metal chest containing all the paraphernalia he needed to gas up, start, and pilot his planes. He did everything on his checklist to prep for takeoff and then returned to the Aries to sprawl in the back seat, which felt more comfortable than sitting, given his rutabaga of a prostate. He clutched his Walmart cell phone in his hand. Even if everything went like clockwork, Reardon wouldn't be texting him for another 30 minutes. He watched the minutes click by on the digital display of the phone, listening to the crickets chirp in the tall grass surrounding the asphalt. He'd read that you could estimate the temperature by the frequency of their chirping. You counted the number of chirps in 15 seconds and added 37. He figured it to be about 80 degrees. When the phone buzzed, he jolted awake, impaling the back of his head on the spiky door lock of the Aries. Drool had puddled on the front of his shirt. Ray held the phone close to his face and read the text. Reardon had kept his message short and to the point. I'm in and the power's out, was all he wrote. Ray was relieved again and immensely embarrassed that he'd fallen asleep during what must have been a difficult time for Reardon. He chided himself to do better. He pushed himself off the seat and slithered out of the car. He grabbed the starter motor from the flight caddy, flicked on the juice to heat the engine's glow plug, and then pressed the starter to the nose cone of the prop. The motor caught almost immediately, and Ray hurried to snag the plane by the tail, so it didn't start down the runway before he was ready. After disconnecting the glow plug wire, he took the radio controller from the caddy and shoved the throttle wide open. The engine screamed. Ray let go of the tail and watched as the Piper Cub trundled across the asphalt. He'd seen video of Albatross takeoffs that looked more graceful. Just when it seemed the plane would go skittering over the side, it bounced off the runway and wallowed into the air, clearing the branch of a scrub oak by inches. Ray let go of a breath he didn't know he had been holding and hurried back to the caddy. He powered on a tablet computer to monitor the GPS tracking and video feed from the plane. The darkened Alexander Valley yawned beneath the aircraft, dotted only by a few distant lights now that Reardon had severed the power main. Without many landmarks to go by, Ray steered almost exclusively by GPS until the outline of the buildings on the winemaker's property became visible on the video. He made for the L-shaped building that housed the tasting room and pushed the elevator down to put the plane in a power dive. The last things he saw were the rapidly approaching shake tiles of the roof 
followed by a sudden flare of light. Then the screen went dark. The flare seemed to indicate that the Molotov cocktails had ignited as planned, but Ray had no way to be certain. It didn't matter. He knew what he had to do next. He called the county fire department to report a blaze on the winemaker's property. Even if there was no fire, Ray and Reardon hoped the hubbub from the arriving fire trucks would serve as an additional diversion for the assault. Ray set the phone and controller down and paused to blot the sweat on his forehead with the back of his arm. The hardest part was done. He had one more craft to launch, but it was more of a Hail Mary than a serious attempt to influence the outcome of the attack. The aircraft was a four-bladed electric helicopter, light, nimble, and capable of flying indoors as well as out. It was intended as a mobile jamming platform to interfere with the signals controlling the winemaker's electronic zombies. In particular, it was intended to jam the signals controlling the winemaker's zombies inside the wine cellar. The theory was that Ray would pilot it through the back door of the cave after Winnie blew it open. Ray would no longer be able to control it once it got inside the cave, but it was programmed to navigate corridors automatically, seeking any transmitters it detected in the area sort of a flying Roomba. It was also programmed to detect the frequencies the winemaker was using to control his slaves and then automatically adjust to them. Ray doubted a single frequency jamming device like Winnie and Reardon had employed at the brothel would ever work again. The winemaker would adapt. Ray knew there were too many variables, too many factors outside his control for the device to have a serious chance of working. The biggest variable was Winnie herself. Who knew if she would even block the door open? When Ray and Reardon had explained what they wanted, she just laughed and walked from the room. Ray then tried to interest Reardon in flying the craft through the front door, the one he was assigned to blow. Reardon had looked down. What sort of chances do you give me for making it that far? He asked. You better stick with the unguarded back door and hope that she leaves it open. Ray had nodded mutely. Now Ray walked back to the trailer and pulled the quadcopter down from its shelf. It was about three feet across with four variable pitch blades on pods emanating from a central hub. Compared to the gas-driven airplanes, it was simplicity itself to fly. He walked it out to a place in front of the Ares, set it on the ground, and flicked on the power. Then he returned to the flight caddy, retrieved the radio controller, and turned it to the quadcopter's frequency. He pushed the throttle forward, and the craft rose as smoothly as a dragonfly, barely making a sound compared to the noisy gas engine of the Piper Cub. He caused it to pitch slightly forward, and then zipped it across the asphalt and over the edge of the summit. The flashing red dot representing the craft on the display of the tablet computer was less than half a mile from the wine cave when he first heard the sound, a motorcycle with a small displacement engine. In the beginning, he thought the sound came all the way from the highway, but then he realized that wasn't possible. The sound grew louder and Ray struggled to pilot the quadcopter while he scanned the darkness for the bike and tried to decide what its presence meant. At last, a lone headlight materialized in the only place it could, the dirt track leading to the summit 
jumping and flashing as the rider flew over the rutted road at tremendous speed. Ray vowed to stand his ground, but his resolution quickly dissolved, and he soon found himself windmilling across the asphalt towards the edge of the summit. He heard the wheels of the bike chirp as they found the blacktop, and the headlamp of the motorcycle bored into his back, projecting the shadow of his elongated form off the cliff. Just as the bike came upon him, he dove to one side, flinging the controller into the bushes. You have been listening to No Hard Feelings, a finalist for the Forward Reviews Book of the Year Award. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Thank you.